A House bill would change the way the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, ATF, would deal with tribal police departments. It would give them easier access to duty weapons by eliminating ATF regulations that don't apply to other police departments. For details, the bill's sponsor, South Dakota Republican Representative Dusty Johnson. Representative Johnson, good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. What is the problem here with tribal police departments and their access to weapons? Well, there are lots of problems that law enforcement agencies in Indian country face. You know, this is not one of the top three or four, but still, I think it's an important one, really for two reasons. Operationally, we're denying these officers access to the same kind of duty weapons that other police departments have. And then we're also, in many cases, charging them taxes when they purchase those weapons, which other law enforcement agencies don't have to pay. So that's an operational problem. That's dollars out of their pockets. That's fewer tools for them to use. But then the second issue is that this is not an appropriate government-to-government relationship. You know, we are called to, uh, in the Constitution, uh, in case law and practice, to make sure that we're treating these governments with an appropriate government-to-government relationship, treating them as lesser police departments, I think, is sending the wrong message about this important relationship. And in general, do tribal police departments have the same sort of training and criminal justice background that you find in other police departments? Yes, there can be an exceptionally high level of professionalism within many tribal departments. And it varies from state to state. And in South Dakota, I know they are invited to participate in the same law enforcement training program that other law enforcement agencies and officers in South Dakota take part in. There are certainly federal training programs as well. The biggest problem, I think, facing so many of these departments are just resources. You look at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. This is a reservation the size of Connecticut. And, you know, it comprises a number of counties that are among the poorest in the United States of America. They've got 33 slots for law enforcement officers to take care of this massive community. Many of those positions are not filled in any given week. And so resources are a serious problem. I wouldn't allege that my bill goes anywhere near enough to solving that problem. But again, it does help on the margins. We need lots of efforts like that. Why does ATF levy them for the purchase of weapons? Is that because they are required to by existing law or is that policy of ATF? Well, it has been the policy. Uh, I don't know enough about the backstory about why they're interpreting some statutes the way they are. It's a relatively nuanced determination. I mean, they are not charging some law enforcement agencies that tax. Others, they are charging them. It really turns on whether or not they are cross-deputized with a federal law enforcement agency. And I don't understand why there would be that language in the statute if there is. But in any event, my bill would clear it up. Right. You could probably spend months and months and never get to the bottom of it. because That's just the way some of these longstanding, you know, agency bureaucracies and their processes operate. And there is also a provision in the bill having to do with machine guns prior to 1986. And what's going on there? Yeah, again, there are a number of weapons that are denied these law enforcement agencies, and this is mostly about equality and parity for me. I just don't like the idea that law enforcement agencies off-reservation are allowed access to certain tools that law enforcement agencies you know, on an Indian reservation are denied. I think if we're going to be respectful, we need to make sure that we've got parity in that treatment. We're speaking with South Dakota Republican Representative Dusty Johnson, and I guess, as you allude, this leads to bigger issues with tribal government, tribal administration. 
and these are centuries-old issues. What do you think are the top problems that the federal government could help Indian and reservation governments with? Well, when I visit Indian country in South Dakota, you know, I'm talking tribal leaders on a regular basis. They talk to me, I mean, first off about law enforcement and about resource adequacy and about how much more dangerous their communities are because the federal government is not making good on their tribal allegations to provide. It is a serious problem. Secondly, they talk about a highly related issue, which is how so many drugs are finding their way into Indian country, destroying these communities. That is not unique to Indian country. I mean, all of our country are dealing with, you know, 100,000 drug overdose deaths a year, fentanyl that is ripping apart families, meth that is doing the same. But the problem is even more acute on reservation. And I'm often told, gosh, we got to do what we can to stop that flow of drugs over the southern border. Third, I would mention uh, roads and other infrastructure. Uh, Again, this is a resource advocacy issue, and it is holding back development in Indian country. Those are the big ones that are brought up regularly, although certainly they're not the only ones. And getting back to the law enforcement question and this cross-deputization, I mean, if a tribal police force is feeling that it needs to have reinforcements or more help, in general, can they call, say, the local county police where they're operating or the state police and they'll get augmented response? Is that something that happens? Yes. The interesting thing, at least in Indian country in South Dakota, they get along. I mean, they understand that they have one another's backs, and there is a high degree of professionalism and respect. Sometimes the politicians can get in the way, right? I mean, I feel like the law enforcement agents, they understand that they have a shared mission to keep communities safe. And, you know, reservations are so often a patchwork quilt of jurisdiction. You may have in a relatively small area, you may have game fish and parks officers, you may have highway patrol, you would have a county sheriff, you would have federal BIA, you would have tribal officers through a tribally administered law enforcement agency. But listen, the cops understand they need to work together to keep communities safe. There are certainly times where that jurisdictional patchwork quilt makes their jobs more difficult, but they want to do the right thing. They want to work together. Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with more about the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to 
President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.